thank you all for uh, for sitting up front. I mean, it is very, very helpful. Uh, it's uh, there's other people that uh, have been invited to come to this class, but if they come and and gee, every every seat is is open except maybe for there on the front. They don't want to stumble across other people to get here. So. If, if, uh, if we want to extend this to other people to participate in, you're doing a, a good favor by sitting up front and letting the access to the back be open. That's very helpful. Thank you. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our fellowship together. We thank you that uh, we're not believers just trying to struggle on our own in the world and, and pick our way through, but you You've given us the guidance of your scriptures. You've given us the fellowship of, uh, of the church. Uh, we, we have instruction uh, through the church, and we pray, Lord, that, uh, that we would be very attentive to the, your means of grace here, that, uh, that you would teach us about uh, how we relate to one another and, uh, uh, and how marriages and future marriages uh, can be used to your glory in your name. Amen. Here he is. And to the end that Rock um, just prayed that we wouldn't be doing the Christian life alone or you would be in a marriage feeling very isolated from other believers, we have home groups um, led by our elders principally, which is a place for single, married alike to do life together. One of our willing elders, Marty Ravenhorst, is here. He leads one. Rock leads one. Is there another home group represented in our group that would welcome folks to come and, and do life together? So that's one of the places we, uh, we support and encourage one another in this, uh, in this life, and not least in this challenge of marriage. The hardest place in the world to live is to live well in a good marriage. It is easy to have a lousy marriage. It's just too easy because there's so much sin in our hearts. The premise of the class is we want to develop a vision, nurture a vision for a gospel-centered marriage. That helps those of you who are married to stop and ask, are we accomplishing what God wants us to be doing in this marriage? And it helps those of you who are single as you think to the future about being married one day, perhaps, what is it I want to set out to accomplish with somebody in this union we call one fleshness in marriage? So the, the image here is that we're sitting down at the table and we're, a husband and wife are asking each other, what is it we're trying to accomplish? How do we know we're doing what God wants us to do? The ultimate goal, as we've said before, is that your marriage would bring glory to God. That's the best and number one reason to work on your marriage. I know many, many Christian couples who are simply in detente. They reach the point of sort of lowest common denominator in the relationship. They found it too difficult and challenging to work on the things that thwart a good relationship. And so they just, well, as my wife says, we're just two ships passing in the sea at night. That's easy to get there. But the best reason to work on your marriage is your marriage is designed to bring glory to God. Okay? So, that's, so if, if my motive is I, I want a good marriage because I want to be happy, or I want a good marriage because I want my wife to be happy, 
Those goals are incredibly fleeting and somewhat self-serving. This is the goal that trumps all. The best reason to have to work hard on a gospel-centered marriage is the glory of God. And when marriage is done the way God says, it becomes a window through which other people see what exactly? According to Ephesians 5. Christ's love for his church. I mean, there's a lot at stake. So I guess I'm saying, you can't just say, oh, you know, life's hard, marriage is hard. We're just going to sort of gut it out to the end. Or as we saw last week, bump off of each other's walls of self-protection for the rest of our lives. I want to gently say that's not an option. There's too much at stake. That our marriages can somehow reveal reveal the glory of Jesus' love for his church the way he lays down his life for the church. That's an incredibly wonderful thing. So if you're married, you can have this discussion, sit down and say, are we... Look at that. That's even spelt wrong about that. See? <laughs> Sorry. Anybody catch that? There, pink. <laughs> that's the ladies' part in this. Um, are we accomplished... And so what we want to do in the class is answer the question, what in, world, what in the world does it look like to have a gospel-centered marriage? Just to reiterate, the way I look at my marriage, the way my wife looks at my we want to use the same lens. We don't want to define what marriage should look like based on our feelings, based on the way we were raised, based on how uh, media and entertainment has informed our view of marriage. We want it, to, strictly speaking, to be based on the Bible. And the Bible gives us an interpretive lens for everything in our lives, Everything, and that is their bifocals, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Any issue you put on the table in life, any issue, any text that I'm exegeting as your pastor, I am, um, I am always exegeting that text through this lens. Creation, how did God make it to design? Fall, how does sin affect it? Redemption, how does the work of Christ affect it? And new creation, what are the implications for glory on this particular issue? I think we said it, it looks like in the new heavens and new earth, it doesn't look like we're going to be married, according to Jesus' teaching. So we got one chance to get it right. <laughs> but actually, actually, in terms of the new creation, Paul says, and we'll exegete this text in, in, um, probably next week or the following week, Paul says that at the end of time, or at the end of my life, I'm going to present my wife to Jesus. There she is. Having washed her in the word, just as Jesus, church is going to be presented to him. Okay, so what are we trying to accomplish? Are we accomplishing it? And when you get up from the table and go on about living together, one question arises is, how do I tangibly love my spouse? So we're going to start, we're going to sort of divert just for a little bit from some of the um, theological, ethereal stuff I've been giving you to some practical hands-on stuff. For example, there's this thing called love languages. It's made popular in the Christian community by a Christian author named Gary Smalley, the love languages. Here's the basic premise between the, uh, about these. We we, there's a way we like to be loved, a way we like to be esteemed and cherished. There are lots of different ways that 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 is, depending on the person. And we tend to love our spouses the way we want to be loved. So if I really appreciate being listened to, 
then I'm probably going to project that on the way that I love my wife and show her. Now, the way I want to love my wife is listening to her. And that might not be the way she's hardwired, as it were, to feel loved. So here's the way this inventory works. I would take myself as husband, and I would run down the list of ten things, and I would, I would list, okay, here are the ways, I would rank the top three or four, maybe, of what are important to me, and then, and then I speculate about the way I think my wife wants to be loved. And then she would do the same. So if you're engaged couples, this is a good thing to do. If you've never thought about this, married couples can do this. So let's run it down here. This is, this is Gary Smalley's list. You could add your own if you wanted to, but this is pretty comprehensive. People generally, some people feel love when, they, when you give them gifts. That little note, bring home flowers, a gift. What, okay, so what's a gift? Uh, secondly, helping with chores. Now, I know that this is one way my, life, my wife likes to be loved. When she went to the concert last night up here, you know, we live in the apartment down the hill here. Uh, when she came to the concert last night, the LA Society, she said, if you have time, do the dishes. If not, it's okay. So that was a ding, 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 ding for me. Uh, that was a pretty easy way to love my wife. It took about five minutes. Right, she's at the concert. I'm home working on my material for this morning. If I hadn't done that, no heartburn for Jana. She understood, but she came home and she noticed. She notices when the dishes are done and the counter's clean and the dishwasher's going. She said, thank you for doing the dishes. I know that about my wife. She feels loved by helping with chores. So if I want to get ahead of the curve, and I know we're having the grandkids over. This now in my home in Virginia. We have this yellow lab that sheds hair. Guess what that does? It puts hair on the carpet. When the grandkids come over, what do you think we want to do before the grandkids come over? Vacuum. So I'm, if I'm really being attentive and thinking outside of myself, how could I love my wife in this situation? I would go get the vacuum and carpet and uh, vacuum the carpet. Because it's going to get done one way or the other. That's an important thing for my wife to have the dog hairs up off the floor when the grandkids come over. So that's... That's a, that's a tangible way my wife wants to be loved. Number three, listening and sympathy. Some people have a greater need to be listened to and to receive sympathy than others. Some, know, is that you? Is that your spouse? Number four, talking, letting me know what you're thinking. For some people that's hard because to, to open up and let you know what I'm thinking, what, do I, what, what am I risking? Well, I might, have to, I might have to risk showing you my fears, my, my spouse, my fears. I might I risk having my wife challenge my thinking. And we're pretty much a pretty good team at this point in our marriage. Janice wants to know what I'm thinking. I want to know what she's thinking. So when she was a school teacher, and when we lived in Lynchburg, she'd come home from work. She had a lot of stuff to process about her classroom. Tell me what you're thinking. And I would listen. When the day is over, I really didn't care much about it. I mean, just honestly, the, the degree to which I cared is, this is my wife's job and what's going on at school affects her. But when the day is over, what happened in fifth grade class at New Covenant School in Lynchburg, Virginia, didn't greatly concern me. But I'm willing to listen. You know what I'm saying? But this is, was that a bad thing to say? No. It's just true. But this is my wife's job. She needed to talk. 
She needs to take a walk around the block. She needed to talk. That was important to her. Let me know what you're thinking. Most men can be a blank slate. Their wives don't know what they're thinking. They're not good at opening up. Five, being physically warm and affectionate. Some people, there's a continuum. Some people have a high need for touch. High need for physical affection. Others, not so much so. If you're the person that doesn't have that, but you're married to one that does, what do you need to do? Force yourself. See, here we go. There's a couple up here in that situation. They're opposites. Usually people fall out on opposite. Huh? I didn't say who that couple was. I would have a Ponzio idea if you were So... So usually couples fall out very differently on these scales, right? One needs touch, the other doesn't. So you're sensitive. You adjust your expectations accordingly. This is a way. So I get it from the table, and I know this is important. Touch is important. I make it a point to say, even though that's not important to me, I'm going to go out of my way to hug my wife. If that's important to her. Six, affirming me, telling me what you like about me. Granted, that could just be feeding an idol, right? If one of my idols is needing approval, needing to be liked, sometimes I... <laughs> sometimes I wish... That is not my wife's idol. She, she does not need approval like I do. So sometimes I wish I married somebody who would give me all the approval that I needed. That would not be good for me. That would be just feeding my idol. Does my wife encourage me? Absolutely. She has a vision from the Lord to be a source of great encouragement to me. But it's not her, her first instinct to lavish me with approval. And that's good for me, right? Where do I need to find my approval? From Jesus. It wouldn't be good for me as much as, as, much as I might have liked it. Seven, standing up for me. Is that something that's important? I remember a situation at my church in Lynchburg years, years and years ago where a couple had some issues with me and, and they called Janice and me over to their house to talk about this. And um, it wasn't sitting well with my wife what this person was saying. And in the middle of it, she made a comment that, was, that just really stood up for me. And it was sort of an existential moment for me. Wow. It was very profound for me. My wife standing up for me like that. Um, really, really, really stuck out. Eight, changing things that bother me. So one of the themes in our house is I don't notice the dirty laundry on the floor. I don't notice, oops, last time we were home, I, forgive me if I just told you this story, but there was a little Christmas tree that we'd had out on the porch it's time to pick up to the attic. I know, we're just putting up Christmas decorations in May. And, and Janice said it right at the base of the stairs. We go upstairs. I have the ability to walk right by it, go up. You Now, at first in our marriage, Janice interpreted this as me not loving her and being disrespectful. And she finally understands now, though my eyes literally may have scanned it, I didn't see it. Or I would have picked it up and taken it upstairs, right? 
So one of the things is training myself, training myself to, what are the things that bother her? That's important to me because I love her. And I don't want to create any unnecessary bother more than I already do. Okay? So it's, it's what are the, honey, so if you're not sure, just ask your spouse, what are some of the things I could work on? What are some of the things that if I did this, it would communicate to you love, concern, respect, attentiveness to your needs? Just ask. And, you know, if your spouse says something that isn't, ne- isn't necessarily godly, then you can have a discussion about that. But in other words, if your spouse says, just give me the credit card and let me spend unlimited, limitlessly, that's not a good thing. Right? You, need to, you need to have a discussion about that. So changing things that bother me. Number nine, again, the love language, spending time with me. Spending time with me. Early in our marriage, I made a critical mistake. We were, we were newly involved in our PCA church. I was, God was sort of developing in me a, a heart and a passion for ministry, even though I worked at the University of Virginia working with college students. I was involved in my church as a deacon, doing lots of ministry, and lots of evenings out. And I really deserted my wife. Uh, because I was out doing all of this neat stuff, sort of leaving her behind, either by herself or with a little baby, our, our first child. And I think I trained Janice to become independent of me. And that's not a good thing. What, what am I communicating? Every weekend... The husband comes home and he's like, okay, I'm going to be six hours out on the golf course every Saturday. And she's like, wait a minute, you just worked the last five days. Now I'm ditched on Saturday. These are things you need to think about and talk about. How important is spending time with me? Um, On the other hand is number 10, giving me space and freedom. Even though you're one flesh, you're an individual who has a need to recharge, to rest. So Janice understands that, as Charles Spurgeon said, the great preacher, any preacher worth his salt has the obligatory Sunday afternoon nap. That's what Spurgeon said. So Janice understands, do you need to take a nap, honey? That's okay. That's okay. She can take one, too. Okay, giving me space and freedom. So those are some of the... Do you want to make any comments about the love languages? I think there's something to this. It's really a test of other-centeredness. Am I thinking about the ways that are important for you to be loved, and I'm intentionally trying to deliver them to you because I love you. I want what's best for you. Any thoughts on this before we move on? It's not rocket science. Okay. Now, does people have just one primary love language, or is it multiple? Several. Uh, nobody has all of these, but there's sort of a primary one or two, maybe three ways that are really important to you. That's right. So it's, yeah, you see this. So you think, okay, the way to love my wife is bring her home a box of chocolates. But she doesn't want chocolates. They're fattening. They just, so the, the thought is nice, but the, uh, the overall effect, it isn't accomplishing what you want because you want to bring her home from, as it were, what it is is meaningful to her. So it might be come home from work and say, give me the vacuum. And for some men, that's maybe the last thing they want to do. I heard one, one, one preacher say the most, the most threatening place 
in the world for a man to enter is the back door after work. Because it challenges him to live in a way that is, that is way out of his comfort zone. I don't think about that. It doesn't have to be that way. So there are the love languages. Number seven in our list of questions teasing out what it looks like. I'm going to try to be a little practical this morning. Are you aware of the common ways spouses hurt each other? Now, true confessions. When I first got this list, it was ways husbands hurt their wives. And I said, well, I'll, de- I'll, I'll make it less sexist. I'll just say the way spouses hurt each other. But I just want to be honest with you. This was a study done by somebody. and I, So I've just made it the way spouses hurt each other, but the original version was the way husbands hurt their wives. We don't want to always be beating on the husbands. And I don't know that there's a list of the, that exists the way wives hurt their husbands, but here you go. Number one, frequently criticizes you. Uh, is there a lot to criticize about me? Answer, of course. I am a broken, frail sinner. I'm going to struggle with sin to the day I die. There's a lot to criticize about me. That doesn't mean I'm at, I'm at rest with my sin. It should be, for Jesus' sake, it should be important to me because Jesus is the one who's come to earth to do something about our sin. Therefore, I need to be vigilantly, intentionally doing something about my sin. doesn't give you an excuse. Oh, honey, I'm just a sinner. Let it be. No. If you're a Christian, you're not a sinner. You're a saint who struggles with sin. So either you are or you aren't struggling with sin. You want to be married to a person who what? Knows you're a big sinner and is doing something about it. Remember our chart a couple weeks ago. So, my wife knows what a big sinner I am, but she's not frequently criticizing me. And stop and ask if you think, you know, that could be me. I'm kind of have a critical spirit towards my spouse. Again, surprise, surprise, your spouse will give you lots of data to find to be critical of. That's just the way it is when you put two sinners under one roof. What's going on in my heart that I need to do that? Is it an insecurity on my, my part? Am I insecure? with my own sin that I need to be somehow somehow elevating me by putting another person down. A lot of times that's our motivation. Years ago, in another state, I was struggling with a fellow Christian in my church. And it was really hard to shake for me. It's the kind of like default mode. My default mode when I was in a bad place was this person and sort of feeling anti this person in my heart. And I sort of got this vision, as it were, a small V vision of me back into a corner with swords drawn defending myself against this person. Because this person was critical of me. Got it? I'm defending myself against this person. And I felt like the Lord said, small ass said, what are you defending you're defending your ego, but you're already secure in me. Right? At that moment I'm doing this, I'm not secure in Jesus. I'm defending an ego that's already been crucified with Christ. So I'm just asking you, look into your heart. What is driving a critical spirit? Again, people will give you a thousand objective reasons to be critical of them. 
And you know, if you've been married any length of time, you've got to pick and choose the things you need to sit down and talk about. Pick and choose. Sometimes you just go, let it go, let it go. Other times, we need to address it. Okay, number one, frequently criticizes you. What a lousy place to live. Right? Nobody wants to live in a place where they're always criticized. Number two, doesn't pay attention to your words and ideas. Uh, I guess the word we have in English is they're dismissive of you. So how would my wife know what she's saying, what she's sharing is important to me? How would she know? I listen. I let her talk. I say, tell me more. Explain that. How are you experiencing that? So one of her non-paid jobs is coordinating care for her parents who live in Pennsylvania. They have people that come in basically 18 hours a day and through a John Hancock insurance thing, they have one of these you know, stay-at-home things. Her parents are in their 90s and Janice coordinates all of that stuff. And sometimes it's a headache for her. So it's important for me to give her an opportunity to talk about that. Look, microphone off. It's boring to me to hear about it. Uh. Honest, Ed. It's boring. However, it's important to my wife. They're her parents. So I need to let her talk. I need to listen. Sometimes it's easier for me to just, you're driving along and she's talking about, I can just put up this invisible window. Like, <laughs> I'm, look, true confessions. That's Mike's selfishness, though. If it's important to my wife, listen, tell me more. Is there anything I can do to help you? Don't tell her I said that. She's in the nursery this morning. <laughs> you could tell her. Number three, doesn't assume enough of the household responsibilities. Guilty as charged. Right? Imagine the man who works hard all day, who comes home, and you know what mom's been doing? She's been working hard all day too. In fact, I didn't appreciate this till the women's retreat. Right? In 1991, the women's retreat. Guess who was stuck with the kids all weekend? Dad. And every dad's position when mom comes home in the room is treated as what? You take them. <laughs> They're spent. Well, mom does this every day all week long. And so we come home from work and we think, oh, because I took out the trash, I cleaned the whole house. You know, that's you know. No. So imagine a man who, right, that's, that's, that's the, that's the, uh, when a man thinks he's a hero, he, he takes out the trash and he thinks he cleaned the whole house. So imagine the guy who works hard all day, but comes in the back door and realizes, oh, my wife's been working hard all day too, and chooses to do the dishes after dinner. I teach couples that when, when, when you're, what kind of spouse are you looking for, that when you, if you're a man and you come in the back door and your wife the food is burning, the dog is peed on the floor, and the baby is, is spilling, you know, spilling her food all over the floor, you don't care how big her chest is. You care what type of servant she is and how humble she is. But men, men are wired like this. They think that's what really matters. Look, but when you come home, and same for a woman, is did I marry a servant? Did I marry a man who when she sees me? Some of you can't believe I just said that, but I said it. Did you read Proverbs 5 this morning? 
Can they recover something? I'm on the authority of Solomon to say that. Just read it every day. But what's important is a servant, a humble servant. And that cuts both ways. So you're struggling there with the kid's mom, and your husband comes in. Is your expectation that he goes? What is this? What's the old thing? Gets his paper, lights his pipe, gets his brewski out of the fridge, and kicks up his feet, and you keep doing all the work? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know about that. Unless you have an agreed-upon arrangement that that's the way it is. Liz? Also challenging when you're both working outside the home and coming home at the end of the day and committing to, okay, we're going to tackle the household stuff we need to get done yes. together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not just both sitting on the couch. <laughs> so, so Liz is saying when you t- have two people working outside the home and there's responsibility to get, you need to have a strategy. And maybe the strategy is, we're going to give each other space when you get home from work. Give me a chance to decompress. Just give me space. Okay. And then we're going to engage in the things we need to do. Because most men want to come home from work and have their wives fall at their feet and worship them and say, take me to bed. That's what most men want. That's, I'll speak as a man. Number four, one's own needs and desires always come first. What do we call that? Selfishness, pride, that comes very easily for us. So, so as I'm driving home from work, and I know I'm going to come in that back door, how am I praying? I'm intuitively thinking, how is my wife going to meet my needs? That's my intuitive, right? That's my, so how do I need to pray against that? Lord, let me go in and love my wife as Christ wants the church. If I don't pray that into my soul, it probably isn't going to happen because I'm too selfish and too much of a sinner. So that's, if you have a long commute, Jesus has just given you more time to pray. (laughs) Number five. Tries to explain away your hurts instead of trying to empathize with your feelings. Again, original context, the way husbands hurt their wives. As a rule, women tend to be more affective, intuitive, Reflective, men tend to be more cognitive, ideas, don't you understand? So the women's over here hurting emotionally, the man wants to go into explanation mode. That's, that's a world that isn't going to work. So the point of this one is, if your wife is sharing, bearing her heart, she, she's crying, what does she need at that moment? A shoulder to cry on. Just listen. Tell me why it hurts. Tell me how it hurts. Men are problem solvers as a rule, right? We're problem solvers. Don't start solving the problem until you feel with her the, the emotional impact of the problem. Okay, as a rule. That's not true in every situation. Some men are more emotional. Than... So as a rule, people don't want you running and solving their problems before they feel like you understand the emotion I've got attached to this. Okay? Tell me more. How's that feel? Because part of the solution to the problem is addressing the emotion. Uh, number six, acts as if he's superior and you are inferior. What's that born of? Pride. I was really good at this for a long time. Acts as if I'm superior and you're inferior. 
Let's suppose, let's suppose, I'm sort of backing up a little bit to the one before. Let's suppose you do have a solution. Did I say this last week, that people who come to solutions quickly, let's say this last week. If you have the, uh, the gift of discernment or wisdom and you know, there's a problem you're trying to solve and, and your spouse, there's a lot of emotion mixed up in it and you do need a solution eventually, and you're a person who comes pretty quickly to see answers and solutions. If you're that person, what do you need to do? Put the brakes on. Slow down. Trust that you'll eventually get to that solution that you have. But someone who's slower to get there, you need to walk with them to that point. Always reduce it down to the slowest person in the equation. So, so on, let's suppose there's an issue where you're just better at your spouse than this. You, you don't have to deny that's true. You're just better at it. What's the reason you're better at it? You're less thorough. Sorry? You're less thorough. You're less thorough. <laughs> In other words, you think you're better at it. You gather more facts. Gather more facts, right. Um, always be willing to gather more facts. But if you're stronger than your spouse in this particular area, there's really one reason why you are. That's how God wired you. The, the grace of God. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. I don't think we really believe we would be worse than Hitler but for the grace of God. But we would be. I don't think we believe that. But that's a... You're going to hear it in my sermon this morning. There's a little bit of overlap. But the starting point for doing relationship is what did I deserve? I deserve the wrath of God. I did not receive it. Therefore, the door to enter all relationships is mercy. And man, that really changes the way you treat them, the way you're willing to slow it down and gather information, etc. Okay, seven, shows preference to others. You ever been in a situation where you felt like, gosh, my spouse is treating everybody else around, around me better than they're treating me? Yep, yeah. Guilty as charged. Eight, doesn't go out of the way to add romance to the relationship. That's, again, directed at men. They're, they're not so, in, not, as a rule, not so interested in romance as the end of that. Well, women don't do a good job with that either. Sorry? Women don't do a good job with that either. Okay, good. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. So look, Janice you know, has basically said, can we hug more? <laughs> Meaning it's not hugs going somewhere, it's just a hug for the sake of a hug. That's, that's, what, can, we, can we just do that more? Rock. Uh, you, you've given us two different lists here. I mean, you, are you uh, suggesting that uh, we should sit down together over dinner sometime and say, okay, how do you stack up here? How do you see me? go through this list, or is that too explosive? Um, that would be the ideal way to approach this. How do we have a more gospel-centered marriage? And if a man can take the lead by saying, 
here's eight, studies show eight ways men hurt their wives. I want you to tell me honestly if I'm failing one of these areas. Now, if you take the risk to do that, number one, wives, you better be very, very gentle in pointing out mistakes. And two, men, you better be willing to follow up and do something about it, or you're going to lose your credibility. Hey, remember that discussion we had three months ago about things you're going to change? Uh, I forgot, and I didn't change any of them. So that it feels very unloving. It feels disingenuous to say, can we talk about this, and then there's no follow-up. So the way to do it is to say, man, take the lead. Honey, what do, I, what do I need to work on? Now, please help me with this. Help me with this. And make a note. I'm going to re-engage with my wife on we. I ask you to help me with this area. How am I doing? Are you praying about that for me? Have you noticed any victories or defeats or whatever? Fabi? And also... Again, you discharge grace because you or your spouse you may fail the first trial and then just be courageous enough to go back and revisit. Yes. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage because you're putting your ego on the line. That, right? There's this thing that we, at least for me, I wanted to, when I got married, I wanted to appear a certain way, together, competent, manly, you know. And, how does the Bible define true manliness? Servanthood. The glory of Christ. Manliness was a servanthood. Did you say I have five minutes left? Five after, thank you. Did I answer Rock's question? I think the way you endear yourself to the other person is you take the lead saying, what are some things I can work on? What are some things I can start doing or stop doing that communicate I love you and I want this relationship better? If, can you take the lead? And again, the point is, be willing to get honest answers, and if the person asks you, be gentle when you respond, but be willing to follow up too. Every relationship needs that. Every relationship needs it. And the reason for it, again, the glory of God. So turning to the next page, this is a list of communication jammers. We're asking a series of questions that are helping you nurture a vision for a gospel-centered marriage, you have to communicate well with each other. And these are basically different ways our pride motivates us to cut off good communication. If you ask people generally, why do you have a good marriage, they'll say, we do a, we do a good job resolving conflict and we communicate well. Very hard to have a good relationship without communicating well. Here's a list of them. Clamming up, hinting instead of being forthright, being slow to admit you're wrong, guilty as charged, piling on when the other admits they're wrong, being problem-centered versus solution-centered, exaggerating, you always do this, you never did this. It's probably not true. Being defensive, making excuses, rejecting criticism, hitting below the belt, I mean, that's just like when you say something nasty to your spouse, that will stick with them for a long time. I've, I've been with people, I've been with some couples, and they like F each other out in front of me. I'm like, what? 
Are you kidding me? What? I can't believe what I'm hearing. And they threaten to divorce each other. And That's actually the last one, use scare tactics. It's, I'm appalled at some of the things Christians say to each other. And you, know, you don't get a chance that I, I don't believe you, you can say something mean and hurtful and go, I didn't mean it. I think as a rule, that's not true. The mouth speaks out of that which flows out of the heart. So that's hitting below the belt. Being a know-it-all, quick to analyze, I told you so, what would be driving that? What would be driving that? It is, is your need to prove you're right. And remember, is there a scoreboard in heaven of all the arguments you want? There's no scoreboard in heaven. There's no ultimate tally. When you stand before God on Judgment Day, He's going to go, Good job, Mike. All those arguments you won, you proved, Janice, you were right. That's going to count. It's going to be a crown, you know, gem in your crown. I don't think that exists. It's going to be how, how Christ-like, sacrificial, loving were you, laying down your life for her. It's just pride. Jumping to conclusions, if you just think about um, a lot of either sitcoms or drama in media, the, the, whole, the whole narrative runs on people jumping to conclusions, so every, nobody really knows what's going on. You know how narratives run on that. You jump to conclusions, you start doing this, but no, they don't have all the data. They don't have all the data. Interrupting usually doesn't help. What would, what would drive you to interrupt somebody? The need to make the point, to get your point out there, to, because you are, or you think you are, right. It's generally not a good method of communication. Sending mixed messages, aborting with an early apology, you know what that is. Somebody needs to point something out, and they begin to explain it to you. You go, okay, no, that's all, I understand, okay, I got it, I got it. Translate it. Get off my back. Translate it. I know I'm guilty, I don't want to go. Translated, my pride has something to defend. Translated, I'm ultimately insecure if I can't have people point out things that are wrong. Well, that's not the picture I have. Go ahead, Shirley. <laughs> you know, I work with kids who have emotional control issues, and they'll say they're sorry after whacking me a second later, but they haven't really processed how they lost control and why. Good. That's the way to get it done and to shift. <laughs> I think it's a variation on the same thing. Like uh, you, your spouse points out that, that you hurt them and you go, uh, I'm sorry. What should you say? Number one, sorry doesn't do anything. It's please forgive me. Because when you sin against someone, you've started a transaction. You've created a debt. If I sin against you, Joe... I, I now am indebted to you because I owed you love, I owed you respect, I owed you whatever, and when I, when I sinned against you, I didn't give that to you. So Joe points that out to me, and I say, I don't say, I'm sorry, where does that leave Joe? Huh? Oh, okay. No. I say, please forgive me. Now where's the ball? Where's the ball? It's in Joe's court. And he has the choice, he doesn't have a choice, he has to say, he has to say what? I forgive you. So, so number one there. Number two, if I'm just saying, as Shirley's pointing out, sorry, 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 I, it would be better to say what? Oh, my goodness. Honey, I did it again. Let's stop and process this. 
Help me understand how you experienced me at that moment. And if I don't care how she experienced me at that moment, I don't love her. I just love myself. So slow it down. One thing I'm going to say in my sermon is you are most dangerous when you're convinced you're right. And let's suppose you... Sorry, you're going to hear this again. (laughs) Suppose you are right. Slow it down. Take the energy out. Be willing to wait to get on the same page. That's what love does. Love is patient. Love is kind. All those good things. Uh, Let's finish this here and then we'll be done for the morning. And you can see where we'll pick up next time. Your greatest fear entering the marriage. These are communication jammers. Changing the subject. Bringing up the past. Again, I think this is just a defense mechanism to avoid being pointed out that you're wrong. Giving the cold shoulder. Belittling feelings. And using scare tactics. So here's a pretty bad scare tactic. I was working with a couple years ago in Lynchburg. And they were disagreeing. And the lady was standing over here in their house like this. And the next thing she knew, her husband had put his fist through the wall. Is that a scare tactic? That's my daughter. She's out. Because what he's communicating is what? Next time my fist is a foot over and it hits your face. Come on, you kidding? Sorry to end on a downer, but... So, think... (laughs) Think about the ways. Yeah, I don't ever want my wife. I don't ever want my daughter. I don't ever want any of you, my sisters, to live in a situation where you fear for your welfare. That's just doesn't mean we don't disagree. Doesn't mean we don't get upset with each other. So let's pray. <laughs> On that hopeful note. <laughs> Lord, we're, we're aware of, of how volatile we are as human beings. And yet you've called us into these relationships. And that must mean there is sufficient grace for us. And there is. Thank you. Help our marriages. Humble us. We want them to bring glory to God. We want our marriages to show our children, our, our, our friends, our parents, the watching world, The way Jesus loves his church, there's a lot at stake. So help my brothers and sisters. Help me to be a lead repenter in these matters. Bring to pass uh, all the marriages affected in this room, that which would bring joy and peace and encouragement and humility and excellent communication uh, for the glory of God in our marriages. Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here.